This is the CT Startup Podcast, an inside perspective on the startup ecosystem in the great state of Connecticut. Coming to you not live from CT Startup International Headquarters, high above the streets of Hartford, Connecticut, are your hosts, James McLaughlin, Dave Menard, Michael Kaufman, and Eric Francis. In today's episode, we have an interview that Mike did with Derek, Julio, and Krishna from A100, a software development training initiative uh, currently in New Haven. But before we get to that, uh, we were going to have a little roundtable discussion about things that are going on in the state of Connecticut uh, and just in the startup community general. And first, I think we were going to talk about uh, a recent event all four of us attended, uh, Flight Night, a pitch event held uh, at Reset, actually at the restaurant across the street from Reset. Uh, A great event uh, where our very own Dave Menard stood in judgment of various companies. <laughs> Dave, what do you what was what was your takeaway from from Flight Night? Uh, first of all, that we have just an awesome entrepreneur community. Um, w- what I like about Flight Night that's a little bit different. So last week we talked a little bit about CT Next and the EIA Awards, which is pitching for cash, right? But Flight Night was an open pitch night. Anybody could come, put their name in the hat. If they get selected, they get to get up on stage, give a three minute pitch, get three or four minutes of feedback from the judges and the audience. And really just take that leap. Being an entrepreneur, getting on stage, um, it shows a lot of courage. Not People aren't very naturally good at public speaking. And it's one of the many skills that entrepreneurs have to learn. And so they could get up there, they could get feedback on their presentation, their, their speaking skills, and on their company. And sort of have thoughts from all three areas. Uh, we, had, uh, we had a full house. There were about 70 people uh, at the end of the day. And it was, uh, there was an, <laughs> it was an, uh, cash bar that, uh, that was well attended. And they did some brisk, brisk business. <laughs> and I believe, uh, uh, you know, and some of the pitches may have gotten a little bit wacky by the end. Uh, but, uh, we, we really had some great companies up there. Uh, and I had a fantastic time, um, working with the companies. There was a lot of great interaction. So. Uh, well, first, I think, you know, it's pretty unbelievable that Dave's made a career at a judging. Yeah, I was, about to, <laughs> I was about to say every, every he is, award, he's just he's judging just, it. You know? so, it's not much of a career when you don't get paid. <laughs> <laughs> We're entrepreneurs. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, and, uh, I wish everyone was able to see, uh, Dave and Kevin Booley, uh, the other judges, uh, pretty amazing Hawaiian shirts. Um, so it was kind of a Hawaiian theme right across the board. Yeah, that was on purpose. We actually chose to, for all the staff and the judges to wear Hawaiian shirts because uh, we're wacky, crazy guys. No, uh, because <laughs> we really wanted to um, institute a casual environment. We wanted people to be aware that, listen, we understand what they're going through, you know, how difficult it is. And you could hear people. There were there were, there were a couple companies that got there and their voices would crack at a certain mm-hmm. moment because they, they were nervous about getting up in front of the crowd and they didn't, you know, and they were, their pitch was going well and, They'd have one pause moment and then you'd hear a crack in the voice and I'd feel so bad for mm-hmm. them. But, you know, that's the process. And so we wore Hawaiian shirts to let them know that, the, you know, this is casual. We're all kind of putting ourselves out here. It was probably a smart move to choose Hawaiian and not, you know, something of Alaska because it was about 110 degrees in that in that room. Um, 
I never saw so many people claw for cold beers so quickly. Uh, but no, the, the event was, was really great. It was my first time actually attending a flight night. Um, and really enjoyed it, really enjoyed the pitches. Some of the spontaneous pitches were really interesting. Um, and more importantly, the ideas were really good. Yeah. And, and I mean, um, a little bit different from the last flight night that we had for reset, you know, um, the one that I pitched at definitely different atmosphere. I mean, obviously there's still the Hawaiian shirts, but, um, we didn't, I mean, the, the pitches that were, uh, the other week, um, no, no presentation really. It was just get up there and talk about it. And if you had, you know, some props you can use, but no PowerPoints like we had used, um, you know, in the previous pitch, which I actually like better. Um, I kind of like just getting up there and doing as, you know, as an entrepreneur, right? Everywhere you go, you're almost pitching. <laughs> uh, every person you talk to, you're trying to give them the spiel or, or if you have to answer the question, like, what do you do? <laughs> which is sometimes difficult for an entrepreneur. Um, but, uh, but no, I, I definitely liked it, uh, kind of the casual atmosphere of it. I would actually think that, like, those are the type of events that I want to see happen more often. Like, I don't care if there, there, there doesn't need to be money on the line. You know, I just want to see people pitch. And because once you get people pitching, it's for me, and I think I mentioned this, um, on, uh, one of the other podcasts was that it's all about the conversation afterwards. You're, you're not getting everything out in that three minutes. It's, it's all about getting somebody excited to talk to you afterwards, which, there were, I, I, there was definitely a few companies that out of that, out of the, um, the cohort that, I mean, afterwards people were swarming them because they wanted to talk to them about it. Right. So I think that's, um, if there were more, uh, pitches like that and more nights like that, I think, um, I think that's actually one of the events that would help kind of curate the community a little bit better. Right. Uh, just being able to go up there and pitch it and, you know, fall on your face if, if that, you know, if that happens. If not, you know, you're jumping around for joy because you did well. Actually, one of the uh, one of my favorite things of the night is exactly what you're talking about, which is I heard so many people talking uh, either in a break or after the pitches were over about things that they could do together, see them handing business cards and contact information back and forth. Those events create so much more uh, activity in the community than just the event itself. And and it's it's fascinating to see how the companies work. So completely randomly. We had uh, one company pitch called Fresh Farm Aquaponics, which, Eric, you also work for and are part of, um, and they are an aquaponics company. Um, interestingly enough, the very next company that pulled out of a hat was a company that works on a uh, computer – well, I don't know if it was the next company. Maybe it was a couple of companies later, but it was, a, it was another company that develops a computer uh, and a, a – and hardware monitoring system for yeah. hydroponic systems. Yeah, the sen the sensor guy. And and which is great. So you can remotely, you know, monitor and control your hydroponic systems and know what's going on with them without actually having to be there. You could even feed the fish if yep. you have an aquaponic system. Yeah, and that's and that's and actually that's like the, one of the bigger things because it was so casual of a night. I mean, I know the guys at Fresh Farm, they they had uh, met him previously and kind of said, "Listen, you need to go to Reset and be a part of it." And then he was able to, again, just get picked out of the hat and go up there and, and talk about it. And you could tell that, and it was interesting because you could tell he was a little bit nervous once he got up there. But by the end of it, he was, you know, kind of, kind of loosened up a little bit and, and was able to kind of, I mean, you can definitely tell he's an engineer. <laughs> but, uh, but that's not a bad thing because a lot of companies are, are started by people who are, are in the know, you know, like they're, this is what they do every day. They see a problem and they, they can correct it. And sometimes they need to, practice getting out there and talking about it before they can curate the team to come on or curate the kind of the help to to help them get that idea further so i think that's actually 
again, why those pitch checks are so important. It's not about winning the money. It's about getting people to just be comfortable talking about their idea in front of people. And it's only... It's it's a lot of, almost easier to network from there because the people know them and they right. go up to them. Yeah. They also have to test their ideas. Well, they yeah, they need to yeah. get you know, and here oh, yeah. and here you get you you get to learn public speaking, but you also get instant feedback. You're going to get some questions. Sometimes the judges aren't going to agree, which which happened, uh, mm-hmm. and which is a good thing, right? Because you're always going to get multitude of opinions from various people, and they're not all going to agree. And so you know, as a as a business owner, you realize that. That people provide you with a wide variety of opinions, and then you're the one who's responsible for for taking that information and using it the way you need to. Um, and also, uh, the judges, you know, do their best to give you know very good feedback. Um, that's and sometimes ask questions. I, there was one company, uh, Parrot MD, yep. that is working on trying to help doctors and clinics that deal with illiterate patients get be able to give them a device that will allow them to listen to their prescription mm-hmm. and how to take it so that way that that way the patient won't mistake their prescription information or won't mistake their drugs which happens much more often than people would think um and so it, it was you know they were fascinating but one of the things i had to ask was <laughs> was was whether or not you know well what's the difference between their product and say buying a recordable hallmark card and I haven't bought a card in forever, uh, but I was shouted down by the audience, which rapidly informed me that Hallmark cards are very expensive. So, so everybody knew that but me. So, but it's very good because you know you never know what questions you're going to get. Yeah, but actually, it's kind of funny because <laughs> the the reason why it always came up because he he said how much he was going to sell it for, right? He mm-hmm. he had um, three dollars or something like that, and it was just like Hallmark cards go for like five or six dollars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, and it's like this has to be a durable piece of equipment that can be thrown around, stepped on. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, in Africa, and it's like might need to be able to sell it for a little bit more than three dollars. So, Dave, what do you what do you get your wife on on her birthday or anniversary? <laughs> and, and no, no card. So, do we have another topic? Was there another topic? Well, I, I, I think moving forward, uh, moving forward as quickly as possible. Um, I did see a, t- a team pitched at a UConn. Uh, we will never bring that up again. Uh, a team pitched at a UConn uh, from UConn. I think there were two recent grads and. They were working on a, a device that basically kicks away um, the uh, traditional foam roller for massaging and everything like that. They have a much more innovative approach it to it. It's the 360 uh, – 360 movement, something like something that. Something like that. Yeah. So they – I approached them afterwards. I saw their pitch and I asked them what's the next step with their um, – with their prototype and they were looking for an industrial designer. And it just so happens that a uh, two very close friend of mine, two, two close friends of mine are uh, industrial designers. So I put them in touch and, you know, it's, it's events like this that, you know, help bring the community together. Like we've been discussing and more than anything help, you know, through those connections, it helps companies move forward. So I just put them in touch and they're going to have a, a, a meeting next week to start working on a new 3d printed prototype. I just uh, want to bring up two other companies that we saw. And, and, and again, uh, we certainly hope to have uh, a couple of these companies come in and, and meet us on the podcast. And we'll see them as they grow and develop. But one was the uh, pitch winner of the night, which was uh, Send Help Back Home. Yeah. Um, and Send Help Back Home is about uh, being able to send money back to uh, back to a country if someone has come here from elsewhere um, and get money back to their family, but to serve two purposes. First of all, to get the money back cheaply so they're not paying Western Union rates, which, uh, a- a- as the person described it, would seem criminal. Yeah. Um, well, they, they've, been killing, they've been killing it for hundreds of years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, 
Yeah, well, ponies are expensive, dude. That's... Well, well, I mean, plus they had the, you know, back in the day they were getting uh, hijacked and stuff. <laughs> That's right. The, um, and, and the other part was that to make sure the money is used for good purposes. That, uh, so the money being sent directly back to vendors instead of, instead of to people. So that, instead of to the eventual recipients. So that the money is, is cleared to be used by groceries and so on. Yeah. I think that the, uh, the example that he made was you need, somebody asks for money for food and then a week later you see they got new shoes <laughs> or something. Yeah. Like yeah rocking the Nikes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, that, that was a good one. And, um, it, it, it goes to show that somebody like, you know, if you have a really good stage presence and you're confident and you can really speak it and also you can – because in these types of um, – these pitches, there's usually some banter, right, between the, the judges and, mm-hmm. and the person up there and or even the audience. I mean sometimes you get some audience audience questions and it's how you respond to that. I mean we were, t- we were talking uh, before about the CT next one or how the guy had the perfect response for, you know, the, the question. Um, but he had a really good stage presence and it was something where um, he, he knew – he knew the challenges ahead of him and he wasn't kind of uh, shy about talking to him, uh, talking about them, but he, he, he was confident in where he's going to be bringing this. So, yeah. And the, and the next one, uh, which was the runner up in the, in the best pitch, um, in, in the company name, I, I'm sorry, I can't remember, but the person, uh, her name was Alicia. She's an English teacher here in Hartford. She is working on a company that would help people who have dropped out of school. You rise. Um, you rise. That's yeah. right. And, it was, uh, she was passionate. It was a interesting company. There was a lot of ways that she could take it. Um, you know, it, it probably has a little bit more development in, mm-hmm. in, you know, in, in the testing phase and testing out the ideas and everything. But, uh, but, you know, I, she was such a great speaker. I wanted to give her an award on the, uh, uh on the spot just for passion. Mm-hmm. It was, it was really out there. And then we heard from, uh, Hartford Prince, uh, which is a well-known yeah. local mm-hmm. company that, that has <clears throat> sold their items nationwide. Um, and, and they were fantastic, but their pitch was a little bit different. It wasn't, it wasn't as much of this is a business plan and this is an idea and this is so on. It was much more about this is what we believe. This is the community. Yep. And, and this is how, you know, we want to support and share in the community. Um, you know, some, some business professors would take issue with that. Um, but it was, it was a different, uh, it was a different approach that worked for their particular brand. You could tell what it was that they were selling. Yeah. And it was, it was well done. But I mean, even if somebody has, has issue with it, people were talking to them afterwards. Which Absolutely, is that, that, that doesn't you know doesn't matter. And yeah. it was actually um, for you, Rise. It's been it, it, the one thing I, again I like about these events is the fact that you see the progression. If you're if you're around this community, if you're if you're going to these events, you see the progression of all these companies. Where you rise, uh, I mean, she was actually in my cohort of my accelerator. She. She had a um she had to leave uh the accelerator early on, but she's in the next one. But she originally had a card game, that the card game was actually supposed to help you know you know uh this um this market that she's going after. But now she's going for the mobile app to help people who were who didn't graduate graduate yeah. you know high school. And so one of the things is again it's all these aha moments, and one of her aha moments was she was talking to um one of the students that she was trying to help out, and she was like the student said listen. My phone is with me wherever I go. It's right next to me. So if you want to get in touch with me, you need or you want me to do something, you need to make it mobile on this on this piece of device that I have with me at all times. It's you know, it's, for younger people, it's an extension of their arm, <laughs> and you know, <laughs> it's an appendage. And, yeah, and in twenty years, it legitimately will be. It will just be you know attached to your arm. Well, yeah, you implanted. Got the, yeah, yeah. But yeah, well, that's jewelry. Remember, that's jewelry. That's it's not, not like jewelry. <laughs> the Apple Watch isn't jewelry. 
it, yeah. it's it, functional, fashionable <laughs> tech. Oh, I was, I was going to yeah. say, you mean it has less function than jewelry? Or yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the only the only other thing I just want to say about Hartford Prince was uh, I, I'm not calling them out for not you know presenting a business plan. Um, that's why I said business professors might have yeah. issue with it. I actually I actually think in that environment, what they did was was perfect mm-hmm. for what for what they're trying to do. You know, to get out, build the community. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important to recognize, especially in today's age where we have benefit corporations and we have, you know, in the way that millennials and others interact, it's a much more personal level. And the ask traditionally has always been, give me money. That's my ask. I, at the end of my pitch, I pitch you my product. I've told you how I'm going to do it. You, you know, these are our projections. And then you're supposed to ask for something and your ask is money. But, you know, one thing that we highlighted at the event and certainly one thing that worked well for, for Hartford Prince and others is that the ask isn't always for money. At an event like that where there is no prize per se, I mean, there were, there were little gifts, but no, no big cash prize. The ask can be for many things. It can be, hey, you out there in the audience, please help me. Um, you know, can you give me this? Or does anybody know a marketing person? Or whatever the case may be. And it's, it's important for us to recognize that there are many different asks that a company mm-hmm. can have and to try as a community to supply the answers to all of them. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. I really like the fact that the event was open, uh, not only because it allows a variety of companies to, you know, take advantage of learned advice from Dave and Kevin and the collective wisdom of the audience, but also, uh, for its kind of maybe demonstrative or inspirational effect. You know, there may be, you know, there's 70 people who showed up to this event. They they weren't all entrepreneurs. They weren't all uh, judges, staff, or service providers or investors. Uh, so maybe there are some people out there who have a great idea, uh, but are kind of looking at a uh, a, a pitch or or getting their company started, putting putting that idea uh, in, into an enterprise is is a real obstacle for them. So making uh, a pitch event, which 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 can be, you know, I think pretty formidable and anxiety inducing, uh, to make it more approachable. Um, to see people uh, up there pitching who aren't so different from yourself, uh, hopefully that can have you know somewhat of a, a generative effect and, and and get more people with good ideas uh, into the entrepreneurial ecosystem. Dave, you're you're a great public speaker. Any tips? <laughs> <laughs> don't I, let that go to your head. I, I, it's funny you think you think that. I, I don't necessarily think of myself that way, but uh, but you know I. I've been through various public speaking, you know, training things that, and, and, and I made an effort to uh, early in my career to spend a lot of time public speaking just because I knew it's something I would have to be able to do. Uh, you know, eye contact, obvious things, try not to move around too much. Um, some people like to be very, um, informal and glib mm-hmm. on stage and there's a limit to that. Right. The, the, there's some there's something for standing and talking to the audience without, you know, without jogging around the stage and so on. Um, I, you know, most of the common tips for public speaking are are, are fairly uh, straightforward. I think the best part about it is just doing it, interacting with an audience, uh, being up there, sharing something with them that they're interested in and seeing it on their faces. You can see when people have questions, you can see what they're thinking. You can see when they're yawning. Um, you can see when the guy in the corner starts snoring and you can hear it as well. There is, there is a thrill to that. Uh, and I think that many business owners sort of discover that. And I think there's also the fact that there's some, there's an excitement knowing that people want to hear what you have to say. 
and that people want to hear what what you're doing and what you're interested in, and that you can share that with an audience. And if you take it from that point of view, and you're treated a little bit less like a class assignment, and you're treated a little bit more like I'm getting to share something with people who are interested in hearing about it, uh, it becomes an easier event, mm-hmm. right? The little bit of the nervousness goes away. Um, and you know, that's our goal. Our, our goal in hosting these events is to try to reduce the nervousness for people and help give them access to the broader community. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's okay with you guys, I, I, there were a couple things that we wanted to hit before we yeah. move on to the, uh, to the interview. And it's interesting. One of the things that we talked about earlier was Connecticut Innovations that they had just announced they have a new, uh, lead director. Um, and, what what's interesting is is I was looking this up on the internet as we were talking. Um, I wanted to make sure I could say the name right. It turns out that I know this person. <laughs> so oh, yeah. his, his name is Matt Matthew or Matt McCooey. Um, age forty seven. He comes from Chart Venture Partners, um, where he's managing partner. And part of that, he worked at Columbia University uh, in science and technology ventures, um, where he helped manage uh, you know the tr- technology transfer office. Um, what's interesting is that that's what me off, I realized that uh, a number of years ago when I worked for a different law firm uh, as an associate, uh, Matt was the Chart Ventures partner who was assigned to a company um, for their board of directors. Uh, they had made an investment in this company, and I was the person who attended all the board meetings and did hmm. the legal work for the company. Um, and so so I've actually uh, met Matt and talked to Matt. I have not met him in probably about eight years, but uh, it's interesting that I just... Uh, I, I see his name here and realize that's the same map because I knew he was from Columbia Venture. You know, he'd done the Columbia work and he was from Chart Venture Partners. So we'll have to see where Matt takes this, what direction he wants to take CI and what happens to CI in the near future. But I certainly wish him the best of luck. It's a great position to be in. And frankly, uh, Matt, uh, in my limited experience with him, was a great investor. He knew uh, how to work with companies and he he knew business plans and and what companies needed inside and out and how to bring resources to companies to make them more effective. So we will see what he's able to do at CR. Nice. nice. Beyond that, the only other thing I want to mention is this week is E3, which is the largest video game trade show uh, in the world. Uh, normally, I would not uh, go too far into this, but we, there was an announcement. I think one of the biggest uh, cutting-edge technologies that's out there is uh, VR, mm-hmm. right? Virtual reality is is making a comeback, and there's going to be at least four different VR sets available for purchase uh, for your home in connection with your PC or your consoles or whatever uh, in the next year. Um, the first one that's supposed to come out, I think, is by HTC, actually. Um, but the big, f- the famous one is Oculus, and which was originally kickstarted, and there was when it was bought by Facebook for about two b- or. 20 billion? No, two billion? no, it was like one or was two it, billion. Was it two billion? I, either way, it was bought by for two billion for, for a company that had not produced a single product. Two billion. It was two, two billion. billion. Okay. And so. I love, I love how <laughs> all the haters came out and was like, this is supposed to be kickstarted. They're not supposed to be like acquired in 18 months and for a billion dollars when they didn't even put up the money to do it. And it's like, no, that's, that's, that's actually the perfect story. It, yeah. What are you it talking really is. about? It's unbelievable. <laughs> and so they've announced a partnership with Microsoft. And so Microsoft is going to use their Xbox One controller and is going to, it's going to be usable with the Oculus. And they're going to work with Microsoft on projects. That is huge news. First of all, because Microsoft not that long ago had just announced their own VR project called HoloLens, which was more augmented reality where you're looking through a pair of glasses and you see the normal room and they put stuff on top of it. Yeah. Um, and that looked pretty interesting. But And that's not to say they still may not do HoloLens. 
But the, the fact that they've gone over to Oculus and they're going to work with Oculus and thereby in some way Facebook. Um, it's really yeah. a, uh, it's really a partnership between two massive companies that should have a strong effect on the market. Oh, yeah. And, and I mean, that's like one of those things where probably they're obviously going after virtual reality and they're like, you know what? Why spend all the money trying to develop it? They, and like at, at the top level, I mean, a lot of these top level companies, they know what the other companies have in their back pocket. They know the technology behind it. I mean, they're all smart enough to figure it out. <laughs> and so it, it's like, you know, why, why fight them when we can just license it or do, you know, do whatever, you know, make a partnership with them instead of making it them, themselves. So it, uh, but those are two giants right there getting together. I mean, another giant in the space, which is taking a very different approach to VR, uh, Google. They have a Google cardboard. Have you yes. guys seen this? Um, it's basically just a, piece of cardboard that you fold up and you pop your phone in and it could simulate the same things that uh one of these higher end versions could do uh basically like a 360 virtual reality immersive experience and they actually put instructions online so you can make your own you know you just get a piece of cardboard you can cut it up and oh, they like, show you how to make it oh, yeah. you guys aren't being like facetious it's no, just like no, no 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 it's, 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 it's google it's, yeah i'm totally not yeah, following yeah, yeah vr origami no what, what you do is you create this cardboard holder and you put your phone in there Right, so it holds. Uh, I'm walking them through the pictures as Dave yeah. describes. And so, and so, you're, you're actually looking. Your your phone does the uh, d- does the imaging oh, wow. and everything. So that oh, that that's uh, what are, what are those old things that you'd uh, oh yeah, the little picture like a viewfinder. Thing? Or? No, no, no. It's like you'd put the uh, the oh, different man. like story in there. Like back There's in a the circular day, disc like, with multiple yes, yeah. pictures yeah. around it. That's a viewfinder. Right? That's what I thought was a I viewfinder. Think, I think that's yeah. fair. I know um, it was a Fisher Price. We act, some of us actually experienced that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I still have one sitting around somewhere. Yeah. Now that now that was definitely a Google uh, X project. Yeah. <laughs> yeah one of those. But yeah. the those gems. Uh, the, the the interesting thing about that is is first of all it's actually it's actually affordable and Correct. and people can can do it. These the, you know most of these uh, VR products. I don't think Oculus has announced a price yet, but uh, I think HTC's was coming around five hundred dollars or or so. 450. And so you're looking at paying the price of a small mm-hmm. computer. Um, Oculus is expected to be a little bit more expensive. Oculus actually has two separate video screens, one for each eye, both at uh, 1080p high def. So it's, you know, you can imagine how that, how that could be very expensive. Um, and plus it has an audio component. So because they're trying to, to synchronize, you know, the, the screen and the, and the audio, um, and to make the audio much more surround like. Uh, so I mean, that's gonna, I mean, VR is just going it, to, it's really going to change a lot of things. I mean, they, they're even talking about it for podcasting where basically we could have a, a live audience. People just pop on the VR sets and they'll be watching us and we'll be, you we'll don't be want to do that. Folks. I was going to say nobody wants yeah, that. Well, at least not <laughs> us. No one wants to watch us. So we have to stop podcasting in our underwear. Is that what you're yeah, saying? Exactly, yeah. exactly. You guys are wearing underwear? Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but it, it's really interesting. Just a quick little last point about VR is VR was super popular uh, in the early 90s, even in the, the late 80s to early 90s. And then it basically was uh, just shoved under the rug. And now it's come back with force and it's been legitimatized. And uh, obviously it's a huge it's a huge opportunity here. And that was, you know. Oculus Rift yeah. getting acquired in 18 months is proof of that. I, I think it was because people watched that movie like The Lawnmower Man. Was it The Lawnmower Man or something? Yes, like that they, was. The, I, I know what you're right? talking it was about. Like, it was like a VR kind of a thing and he became like a... Yeah, it was a, a completely digital movie, like one of the first that was yeah. pretty... Horrific in terms of graphics these days, but would yeah. Tron be considered a digital yeah, tr- movie? Tron, Tron yeah. uh, the Last Starfighter. Yeah, 
So had, had a lot of that. So it's actually interesting. There, there are some uh, physicists out there that already say that we're living in the matrix. So I mean, this is already like the most enhanced VR. We're just kind of redoing it. You the know? universe is a hologram. It is. It is. So I mean, I'm I'm a little too ignorant to to really fully explain it to people out there, but you can Google it. <laughs> then we're we're all just waiting for our Neo. Yeah. Okay. Um, the the last thing I wanted to bring up uh, before we move on was uh, was uh, a Kickstarter project, uh, which I just find interesting because I always hear about the death of Kickstarter and that you know people okay people have been suckered they re- they've kickstarted a video game or something and the game never arrived and there was recently just a settlement on the first lawsuit regarding Kickstarter where a company had promised they were going to deliver a project and they actually delivered nothing. The guy just walked away with the money and he was sued by, uh, I can't remember if it was the FCC? Uh, Federal Trade Commission. Yeah, uh, the FTC. That makes sense. And uh, in the settlement, he didn't wind up having to pay anything back, but uh, he did have to pay, not to the consumers, he didn't have to pay fines and so on. You know, so we have a new uh, Kickstarter um, just uh, just as of this past Monday, uh, Shenmue 3, which is a it's a series of video games, and this would be the third one, was Kickstarted. It received a million dollars in less than uh, less than two hours. So a million dollars of funding it, that comes in second to the Pebble, which was which was the first. Uh, one of the most major Kickstarter projects ever done that received a million dollar marks, a million dollar mark in forty nine minutes, but that was a few years ago. Holy crap! Shenmue's back. I had no idea. Oh, you're a big fan of the game. Well, I wouldn't say big fan. Actually, I wouldn't even say a fan at all. But <laughs> I, really like I played it. this on the Dreamcast when I was a kid, and I only got so far. Basically, to the point where you get a job at the docks and you drive a forklift around. I played the game to drive a forklift. Uh, never finished the storyline. Never got around to Shenmue 2. But uh, I feel like I should kind of get back into the Shenmue fight and finish. Well, they still have another million dollars to go. So, so they have a $2 million goal. They're at 2.7 million right oh, now. Oh, are they? Yeah. Okay, so I'm reading last this past Monday. Yeah, uh, they they have exceeded goal article. with another 31 days yeah. to go. Okay. Well, I mean that that so, sounds that sounds pretty riveting of so, a of a, uh, of a game. What the forklift? Yeah. Uh, listen, listen, I mean, <laughs> have you ever driven a forklift before? <laughs> it's fun. First of all, you're talking in a day and age where they have a goat simulator, truck simulators. It's yeah. you know, I. I just the word Shenmue sounds far more interesting than any. I of actually will have to say is that like doing like a an eighteen wheeler like simulator. I think that'd actually be pretty interesting. The VR. Well, the VR. sadly, the game wasn't designed to even. <laughs> I think you're only supposed to play this level for maybe five minutes. <laughs> uh, but I got hooked. Yeah. Well, in in our world now, all we know think of it is the forklift game. This is true. Which... <laughs> you said Shenmue. I thought forklifts. And here I am. So, I'm anyways, gonna, I'm so, gonna back it right now. Well, it's it's fascinating. So there, so there we go. That uh, Kickstarter is still going very strong. It's still a viable way to raise money for certain types of projects. It's something that I talk to entrepreneurs about all the time. And until we have uh, true equity crowdfunding in this country, um, it's it's really a, a good option for certain types yeah. of companies. Cool. Yeah, and hopefully those uh, equity crowdfunding rules get out of the SEC at some point. We've been waiting on them for, it's been a couple years now. Other countries already have it. Australia has it. The UK has it with great success. Uh, So hopefully it comes to the US. And and the equity crowdfunding idea was approved in the Jobs Act of 2011. So we've been waiting four years since Congress approved it and two years since uh, the SEC came out with rules. 
So, but they just haven't enacted them. Uh, it's it's crazy. But we have an election election coming up, so it will take another about three or four years, right? <laughs> it's going to be an election. Probably. Let's let's just continue to hide markets from people. Uh, they, they they don't need that. I guess we'll move over to Mike. Yeah, Mike, it was your interview. So I, I've known these guys for a while over at IndieSoft, and I, I've seen them grow over the past uh, almost two years now. Um, and the A100 program, obviously, I'm a huge fan of it for good reason. Um, my developer is from one of the, the A100 cohorts. Um, and I think a lot of people can identify with the issue that tech talent is is few and far between in the state of Connecticut. Uh, a lot of them run off to other states. There's a lot more appealing opportunities for developers. So what they're doing, you know, not just taking in any developer, but the, t- the top tier of talent and having them stick around, nurturing them, training them and getting them jobs and getting them involved in the community uh, is just unbelievable. So I think we should definitely dive in. And take it from there. Great. See you on the other side. All right. This is Michael Kaufman. I'm sitting here with Independent Software, uh, and they run the A100 program. So, gentlemen, if you wouldn't mind going around the table, introducing yourself, and a little bit about you know your role at the company. Sure. My name's Derek Koch. I am the uh, the guy who uh, got the ball rolling, founding the company, Independent Software, and uh, uh, a little bit about me. I'm not a native of Connecticut. I came here uh, by way of Brooklyn and before that Chicago. Uh, but it's a great community we have in Connecticut. We've uh, it's come a long ways in the last uh, five years, especially uh, I think. Um, so uh, our, the program we're running A100 is uh, amazing. It's all about making the environment even more. Um, awesome that it already is and bringing out a lot of the young talent in computer science programs in Connecticut. So um, that's what I get fired up about uh, every day. And uh, I think Krishna, who's with us, uh, feels the same. So I hand it off to him. That's right, Eric. Thanks for the segue. Hi, I'm Krishna Sampat, Program Director uh, for the A100 program. Uh, like Derek, I also am not uh, a native of Connecticut. Uh, I grew up in California in the Bay Area. And um, one of the things that well, there are many things I love about Connecticut, but actually the New Haven startup scene is what kind of keeps me here and enthused about about being here. Uh, it's been a, a really great opportunity to get involved um, with uh, you know sort of co-creating the A100 program with, with Derek and working on that for the last couple of years and really getting a chance to contribute to, uh, to my new home. Uh, so uh, with that, I will pass it off to Julio Mancia, the third member of our merry band. Thank you, Krishna. So my name is Julio Mancia. Um, I graduated from Southern last year, May 2014. Um, before I graduated, I actually met Krishna. He came down to uh, Southern and spoke to a few of the students about the A100 program. I thought it was a great fit for me, so I joined. After graduating the program, I joined Independent Software as an apprentice under a developer shop. At the time, we were doing PHP. A few months later, I decided to join independent software, but join their A100 wing. Um, I'm currently site manager after being a senior apprentice for uh, two cohorts. So, in fact, this is my fourth cohort. Uh, I'm managing the New Haven site, and I'm also doing outreach, going to different schools and talking to the apprentices, letting them know of the benefits I received from the program. Excellent. 
So I just learned something new. Neither of you two. Are you from Connecticut, Julio? Oh, that's a great question. I'm actually not from Connecticut. I'm also from, from a different place far, far away. <laughs> I'm from Guatemala. I moved here uh, 13 years ago, I believe. Um, yeah, I went to middle school here in New Haven. Uh, Roberto Clemente Middle School. After that, we moved to Hamden. Went to Hamden High. And then finally, I ended up at Silver. Hamden High, is that the Dragons? Yeah, yes, it is. Right. Green Dragons. Yeah, so my uncle used to play. He was running back. <clears throat> Rob Kaufman. Um, nice. Okay, so let's dive in. So... I have like a really strong attachment to A100 and with what you guys are doing because, you know, spoiler alert, my developer actually came from your first cohort. Mm -hmm. And, uh, <clears throat> Derek, you and I started having the conversation a long time ago about, you know, just the lack of tech talent in the state. Uh, and I, you know, this is an obvious conversation and you guys kind of being the center focus of shining a spotlight, bringing the talent, harboring it, fostering it. Uh, is, is just what, in my opinion, what this state has needed for a long time. And it's, it's unbelievable what you guys are doing. And, you know, I'm now reaping the rewards of it with my technical co-founder. So I want to know more than anything, why did you come to Connecticut? Was it to, to start this, uh, in particular? Did you see that, you know, there was a gap in tech talent in Connecticut and you said, you know, obvious opportunity. Let's try to fix this. Can you walk me through that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I didn't, I didn't come to Connecticut to start the company. Like most entrepreneurs, uh, I, you know, moving, uh, my location was incidental. Um, for, for the most part, um, you know, maybe after school, uh, entrepreneurs, after graduating from university, young entrepreneurs might go to a specific place because they perceive it to be conducive to, uh, to starting something. But a lot, a lot of people find themselves in a place. And, uh, their location is kind of incidental. Mm -hmm. Um, it has a huge impact on what they can do and, uh, and, and how successful their startup is. But in most cases, um, you know, entrepreneurs aren't kind of setting out to go to a place. And I, I didn't either. I came up here for a lot of reasons. I had just, uh, it, 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 with, together with the management team of a company called Visibility sold, uh, the company to, um, bottom line technologies up in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. At the time that we made that sale, I was living in New York, uh, pretty much going after the biggest client in our industry and, and leading that initiative. Um, it resulted in basically resulted in our our purchase by this competitor. And after I was done, you know, I I had a job with uh, this large publicly traded company. It wasn't really my cup of tea. My wife was finishing up a postdoc at Rockefeller Institute, and. I said, well, you know, if, if you'd like to move, uh, you know, I, I don't really have, um, a specific, uh, goal in terms of career at the moment. So if you want to move up to Connecticut, um, great, you know, so she took a job with Bristol Myers. And around that time, I had been cooking up a bunch of ideas and I said, okay, now I'm in Connecticut. You know, what, you know, what can I do with these ideas I've been, I've been working on? And, and all my ideas at that time hasn't really, uh, changed at all. But at that time, I was thinking a lot about how to optimize early stage product development, how to de-risk the process, how to make entrepreneurs more effective. Um, had seen many, many, many uh, startups fail, uh, friends, companies that I, I was in, um, and just really was attracted to the idea of the, the product development process and how to de-risk it and, and make it more effective. So came to Connecticut and independent software was the first version of of that foray kind of 
finding ways to help entrepreneurs build early stage products more effectively. And, and actually, you know, it was out of that uh, experience of working in that community that A100, you know, popped into my head. It was very much a response to a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, which is naturally the, the <clears throat> aha moment. You see it. Um, interesting. Yeah. And now, how did you and, and Krishna actually come together? Um, yeah. That's, I mean, that's a, a great... So to tell that story at the beginning of it, Krishna can tell the, the second half of it, but the first part of the story is... Um, we're working for a number of years working with independent software clients. Um, and two things are clear. Um, these are really important just in general, but they were important to our business too. <clears throat> Startups, if you work with them, um, are, have a specific profile when it comes to their, their risk. Uh, and, and what I mean is the risk of taking them on as a client. Mm-hmm. Resources are extremely limited and, uh, their creditworthiness is, not always uh, a given. Uh, so, uh, it, but but the other thing is that it, it's very true is that it's very hard to predict. Okay, how much money do I need to start, and how much of my budget should I allocate to what? Um, so, really, the priority of the startup is to spend as little as possible. So, as we're working with independent software clients building products, we're we're noticing this dynamic. In some ways, it's 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 pinching um, and limiting us in some ways, and. One of the strategies we hit upon as we were working um, with clients is finding development talent. So it was hard for us in the beginning to find software developers. And the key strategy we, we landed on was I would go out to uh, local universities and colleges and I would talk to computer science professors and say, hey, you know, who do you have? Um, who hasn't gotten swept up by, you know, some Silicon Valley company or a Boston or New York company? Who, you know, who, who do you have that we could work with? And with, you know, say three to six months of, uh, of training and, uh, experience could be a really good developer. So we, we started that dialogue. You know, I would go out to campuses, look for people, get resumes. And over time, um, we would try to connect those people that we, we couldn't use ourselves with clients. Um, and after a while, it, we started to realize that it was frankly not a very cost effective strategy. For sourcing development talent. It was really expensive and it didn't make a lot of sense mm-hmm. for our company to source talent that way. But as I looked around in, you know, the first five years of, uh, of working here really was about a different problem, which was the startup community. It wasn't about technical talent, but kind of around that, the end of that time period, I was talking to a lot of local founders and they were saying, look, you know, we, we have a really hard time finding developers. This stinks. How do we go about this? Mm-hmm. We don't, this isn't our specialty. How do we solve the problem? And so it was recognizing an opportunity and a gap uh, in the market on my part basically said, look, it doesn't make sense for us to do this for ourselves. But it makes a ton of sense to do this for the community, to, to find a way to stand up a program that serves everybody um, and from which that creates a pool from which everyone can tap, uh, tap into. Everyone can, can grab a developer um, based on their needs at the moment, maybe two developers, three developers. So that was really the the beginning of the vision. And as we raised the funding and got that program in motion, working with the, the team that we had in place at independent software and a few other key people, we opened a position for a uh, program manager for independent, uh, for independent software's a 100 program. And, uh, I interviewed, uh, Krishna and sang karaoke with him. And, uh, and he, uh, actually at the end of his, his interview said, Hey, do you mind if I go over to 
Southern Connecticut State University and, uh, and, and take this meeting that I know you can't, uh, make. It came up in conversation that I wasn't going to be able to, to make this, uh, meeting of, of computer science professors at Southern. He said, Hey, you mind if I go? Didn't have the job, mind you, but showed that, you know, initiative and passion and was really, really excited about it. And I said, what, you know, what better, uh, interview, you know, than to have, have him go out and actually, you know, start to, to, to dig into this process and see what people said. So afterwards, I talked to, you know, John DePonte and different people over at Southern and they said, Oh yeah, we met this guy, Krishna. We didn't know you hired somebody, but uh, he was great. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, okay, that's good. You know, um, good feedback. So that's really, that's really how we came, came together and how we started the process of really creating definition around the program and building out, building it out and making it what it is now. Interesting. So you also sang karaoke with Derek. Oh, uh, yes. I've been a part of that. Many times. It's very interesting. Actually, you know, <laughs> you're a very talented singer. I'm not going to lie. You mean Krishna? No, you. Oh, thank Remember, you. Do you recall my backup dancing moves? I do. If I don't recall them. I have them memorialized in film. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll go out <laughs> dancing and singing after this. Um, interesting. Yeah, it, it's it's really amazing because we're, we're kind of in this really tough spot right now in Connecticut where we need the startups, but we also need the developers. And if the developers aren't around, the startups are going to leave. And if the, if the startups, you know, don't exist, you know, it, it's, it's just a catch 22 at this point. So, you know, what you guys are doing is absolutely fantastic. And, you know, I could preach the good word because, you know, I'm, you know, Sega came to me through the A100 program and it's been nothing but great. And prior to that, I actually outsourced, which was the alternative, and it was a nightmare. Um, you know, costs were cheap. Uh, I was paying about $33 an hour. These guys were in Romania, um, but, oh, my God, it was a nightmare. You know, and, and now that Sega's kind of looked over the code, and he says, listen, it, it's, it's there. It's structurally okay, but, you know, it's still a mess, and, you know, he, there's a ton of code debt he has to go in and, and clean up, basically. So... You know, for for anyone who's listening right now, any entrepreneurs that are listening, what would you say in terms of general advice for outsourcing? Because, you know, it's going to happen. I'm sure you guys have heard countless horror stories. I know I've shared mine with with all of you. Um, any general advice there? I'd say, well, most obvious point, um, or at least it seems most obvious in, in hindsight for mm -hmm. a lot of us, is make sure you retain control of and access to your code base at all times, um, because you know we, we've definitely seen situations where people have have worked with a, an outsourced team, and you know, person on the other side just vanishes, and you know, there's there's no plan to kind mm -hmm. of hand over that code base. <laughs> the other thing I would say is, you know, if you're an entrepreneur who's looking to build a technical product, you can't think of yourself as a non-technical person. Uh, that doesn't mean you're going to be the primary architect of every part of your mobile application. Um, but it does mean that you owe it to yourself and to your, and to your customers to understand what's going on. And so, you know, if that means coming out every week to, you know, to our study hall meetup and just working on, on learning a little bit of code or, you know, looking at some of these online sources that you can learn a ton nowadays, um, um, both for free or, or by paying for certain programs, you know, it's, it's a really great way to understand what you're building. And I think that's, uh, that's essential for any entrepreneur. Yeah, so to that point, I'm actually learning a little bit about Objective-C right now. Nice. And when I told Sega this, you know, like these hearts were grew in his eyes, you know, because there is a passion and <laughs> mm -hmm. there is definitely responsibility. Listen, I'm not going to, 
I know very well I'm not going to get behind the computer and start typing and producing code, but being able to look over his shoulder and understand what's happening and, and key in and give some suggestions, uh, I, I think it's really important for some entrepreneurs, if you're in the tech field, to have some understanding, some degree of knowledge in, in the code that, you know, your, your, your startup is, is created in. Um, so I want to talk about a little bit on how A100 actually works. You know, we're talking about cohorts, we're talking about all this, but kind of walk us through that process. You know, how do you kind of pick the talent? What happens? What are they working on? All right. Well, to pick the talent, uh, that will be my hand. Uh, I go out, I do outreach. Um, first of all, we look at schools that are in the area. Uh, right now, we're getting ready for Stanford, so we've gone to schools like... Uh, Pusatonic Community College, um, Sacred Heart, Fairfield, Fairfield University, um, NCC, Norwalk Community College, Norwalk Community College, just to name a few. And of course, we also go to um, uh, schools that are closer to us, like Quinnipiac, Southern, etc. Um, I go into the classes. We talk for fifteen to twenty minutes. Describe that the program is a 12-week program that's going to train them. It's going to not only teach them about um, coding, but uh, give them everything else that they're going to need in order to be a good junior developer uh, when they join a team. After the, the talk, we start getting applications online. The applications process is divided into three pieces. Um, first, the online application. You send your resume, your cover letter, general information. After that, we set, we review it and we send you a coding challenge. Uh, a simple questionnaire, if you want to call it, where everything you type is recorded. So it's an online IDE where the student is going to go, um, uh, code his answers, and send it to us. After we review that, we have a grade, and we decide what students are going to move to the next phase. Everyone that moved to the next phase is uh, sent a, a phone interview, you know, after we set up that phone interview, we know what apprentices are going to finally make it into the cohort. Anyone that didn't make it into any of the uh, next phases has the opportunity to become a pre-apprentice. Uh, as a pre-apprentice, you come and join us for our open study hall, which happens uh, Thursday nights. Uh, we work with you. We help you develop the skills that you are going to need in order to join the program. And that's how our uh, application process normally works okay so i always wanted to be an astronaut and i wasn't good enough to reach that point i never i'm not going to space you know there's a lot of there's a lot of people that want to be developers not everyone's cut out for it so i mean have you you know obviously you have to cut the cord at some point what's <laughs> it, it's not nice but you know you guys are trying to produce top talent that can right. that can be a part of these ventures uh mm -hmm. and help connecticut <clears throat> out so you know, you have to basically be cherry picking, you know, the best of the best of what you what you can you can get. Well, uh, one way to say it is cherry picking. The other way to say it is if you if you're um, if you think about it, if you're building a community and you want uh, that community to grow and you want it to be really sticky and magnetic and have people uh, come out, experience it and say, I really want to be a part of this community. Um, if you want to get that cycle uh, started, especially with a small community, it's really important to carefully curate it. Mm -hmm. So um, when you have a big community, there are many, many things that you can do in that community. You can have people who are um, psychology majors becoming programmers. You can have people who are 
you know, back-end developers focusing on front-end, you can do all kinds of things. But in the beginning, uh, and you may not realize this, but our the program is very, very, very highly focused um, on a very specific kind of talent. But as you say, cherry-picking is one way to say it. The other way is carefully curating a set of people who have the right skills to take the 12-week program that we offer and really run with it and do something that the partner companies that we work with who hire them are really going to feel great about. So we've, you know, we've, we've been really careful to start small. Krishna and I have worked for a long time on, you know, things, ideas like the minimum viable skill set for a software developer. We're not going about this willy nilly. We want to take 25 to 30 people through an experience that gets them to a very specific point in their career as a software engineer. And that means starting at a specific point. So whether that means targeting juniors and seniors and graduate school students in computer science programs, or whether it means filtering very hard on programming skills and actually being a little bit tough. Um, we've, we've tried to take the, the steps that we need to to make sure that the community is tight, the community is one that people want to be a part of because it's high quality, so that we have permission later on to do more with that community and to involve more people. Uh, if we tried to involve everyone under the sun in the beginning, it would just collapse under its own weight, mm -hmm. frankly. I mean, it would just be trying to do too much. So we've really tried to stay focused and not get distracted, which is not easy. But I have to say that being a developer is easier than being an astronaut. <laughs> so you can go this online. This is true. <laughs> you can go online. You can use the resources. If you're passionate, if you really <clears throat> want to learn, you can get the skills needed to make it into the program. We have several people that weren't computer science majors come into the program, do absolutely great during the program, and at the end get placed with partner companies. Interesting. Yeah, in terms of astronaut, it really wasn't space that was my my draw. It was the astronaut <clears throat> ice cream, the dehydrated ice cream. You can buy that. Yeah, once I figured out you could buy now. it, I, I abandoned all all my mission <laughs> to become an astronaut. Your dream the is desire's gone. I go home, eat like a handful of that astronaut ice cream. I think Julio has found that if you get that ice cream and you sit in a very dark room and you play Major Tom, yes, you basically you basically you're become an astronaut. It doesn't really yeah. matter that you're not hurtling through space at some uh, very very high speed. Uh, that's enough. That's enough of an astronaut. Yes, it is. You can and actually, I think if you pay him a hundred bucks. He would recreate that experience for you. Maybe that's what we should sing. Maybe that's what we should be singing at karaoke afterwards. Yeah. Yes. I don't know how I'd be dancing. My moves to Major Tom, I don't know. Uh, the choreographing may be a little iffy. Yeah, I think the, the robot is applicable. You can just say True. that you were Slow on robot. a mission to pick I think up some that's robots. fair. Robots always applicable. Slow, dramatic robot? Yeah. Okay. yeah Not fast robot. No gravity. No, no gravity, gravity robot. robot. There no you gravity. go. So you mentioned some of these partnership pro, uh, companies. You know, So when these when these... When these uh, cohorts finish, where are these individuals going at that point? Where where do they bring their talents? That's a great question. Actually, one of the things that you know we've we've tried very hard to to make sure we we incorporate throughout the program, uh, not just at the end, is is our partner companies, right? So, um, you know, traditionally, if you're if you're looking to hire someone, you put up a posting somewhere, you you know you you troll local universities, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the first time you probably talk with someone is the time that they're sitting in front of you for an interview. Um, and as most job seekers know and most employers know, that's not actually a winning strategy to match people up with positions. So what we do is over the course of our 12-week 
uh, program, we actually invite partner companies uh, to take part in various uh, various parts of the program. Uh, developers from from partner companies sh- uh, show up and do trainings uh, in collaboration with us, focused on technologies and tools that they really want the apprentices to uh, to learn during the program for their own um, for their own company. Uh, they come to demo days, which are uh, you know a chance for for them to see the work that the apprentices are building over the course of the program. Because as you know, it's a very experiential uh, program, and in in the in the in the three month period, they actually spend two of those months working on uh, on uh, development projects in teams of four or five. Um, so every week they actually demo their work and the partner companies are able to then see, oh, this is the, this is the progress that the, that the apprentices are making. So by the time interviews come around near the end of the program or, or, or just after the program is finished, they actually have had several chances to talk with, uh, with many of the people that they're really interested in. So they have a, a good insight on who they want to interview. Interesting. And another thing uh, I remember hearing about is you're now working with entrepreneurs who actually need some talent, you know, Mm -hmm. and I know there is countless of those individuals around the state. So now if there's an individual who has an idea for a startup or a team that's now looking for the tech talent, um, they can actually become a part of the A100 program and walk us through what happens there. Yeah, that's, that's right. I mean, so in some ways, if you go back to the beginning of the independent software story and this idea of how do you help a startup? We, we started with a pretty conventional model of being a service provider, uh, a contracting firm. There, there are dozens, dozens and dozens. It's not a very differentiated business. There's a lot of competition from offshore. And like you said, there are a lot of reasons that offshore isn't a great solution. Um, in many cases, um, it can be used in some cases, but for the most part, um, it's, you know, if you're in that space, you can get people's attention, but it's very competitive. It's very low margin. It's very, it's also very just, um, difficult to actually serve the needs of the customer in that model. So ironically, independent software and focusing, uh, on the idea of the A100 program and talent created this opportunity to now take a, a group of people who really need experience, these apprentices who normally would be they might be helping a company, but they'd be doing it in a kind of an unguided, unstructured mode. Um, and so we, the A100 program takes those uh, students, gives them training, gives them structure, gives them support, gives them a community. And then when you magically drop a, a couple of hand-picked startups into that mix, well, now they're able to access development talent in a really transparent model, um, they're able to see their code, learn alongside the developers, and they're able to do it at a really low cost. At a time, so the program isn't for everybody. The, the startups that we pick, and we, we don't take every, uh, every venture that comes in, uh, we look for ventures that are at a stage where the early part of product development is the most important thing. The part, um, the part of the process where the customer need is actually not well-defined, and there's some exploration that still needs to be done. The business model is not set. You're not in ramp-up and scale-up mode. You're in discovery mode. You're in customer development mode. So we take startups at that at that stage that kind of culturally fit the program. They want to work with, with apprentices in a transparent model. They want to work with us. They want to be collaborative. Um, you know, we have a certain culture. They need to fit that uh, to a degree. And we our culture is great, so, you yeah, know, that's cool. <laughs> 
but basically we we give these these two startups each each cycle the opportunity to basically get two two separate teams two teams of four to five that work alongside each other do independent work but at the end of either four weeks or eight weeks are delivering product for the startup so they can go out and validate they can raise investment they can do a number of things that they wouldn't normally be able to do and they're not spending sixty thousand a hundred thousand dollars to build a product that they're not sure the market wants um, and and in a lot of ways again going back to that the genesis of independent software the, that was the idea de-risk the process find a way to do the right work at the right time to learn and then attack the the market attack your your product development exercises efficiently with you know conserving cash and doing doing things right so that you can you know live to fight another day you can you can do the next step in the process and you don't blow all your cash in uh in mock-ups or mm -hmm. you know you don't build a product that's runs perfectly but nobody wants to use because it does the right the wrong things the right way and to that point you know these these entrepreneurs can actually leave the a100 program <clears throat> with you know a completed product uh and potentially with a developer that wants to join their team um right. so i mean it's 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 a great opportunity. And, you know, I think this is exactly what Connecticut needs right now. Um, so tell us, I, I hear talks of Stanford. So what happens next? What's next for A100? Julio, do you have, uh, well, any thoughts on that? Yes, I do. We have a ton of applications that have been coming uh, in the, the past few weeks. So we're looking in great shape to begin our, our cohort, uh, next month. Sorry, we're not in May yet. So <laughs> the beginning of June. Last four days there. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we're not sure when this is launching, so it may have already happened or may not have happened yet. That's a good point. Yes, yeah, so uh, we're getting ready to uh, start in June. We're going to be in Stanford. We have everything lined up, and I'm really, really excited to see uh, all the new faces, all the new apprentices, and get them to the next level because we've seen a tremendous growth on our current cohort in here in New Haven. Um, I think it's a great opportunity as an employee, uh, being able to see someone grow so much in such a small amount of time. That's something that I didn't notice while I was going through the program or when I was uh, being a senior apprentice. But now that I'm on the other side of the fence, now that I'm uh, doing management for them, I can actually see the growth that's happening. And it's very rewarding. It's very rewarding. And I kind of wait for Stanford in, in, a, few, in a few weeks. One of the reasons why uh, Stanford makes such a, a great next step for us at this at this stage is there are a number of universities there, um, and a lot of the students uh, that that we've been talking to over the last couple of years haven't necessarily been able to travel up to New Haven, you know, three or maybe even four times a week to attend trainings and demos and and come work with uh, with product teams up here. The other, the flip side is also that you know there are a number of companies located in the Stanford area. For whom it would be way more convenient if we were actually operating the program uh, near them as well. Uh, so when we when we made that announcement, it was really kind of like like Julio said, a floodgate of new new applications came in from from that area, which has been really exciting. Uh, and it, and, it, and it makes sense, right? There there are different potential companies in that area uh, that are that are looking at uh, perhaps different things. We're really excited to see what uh, what this next phase uh, brings for us. Yeah, and and uh, that that partner company—that's what we refer to the uh, the companies that hire out of the program. Partner companies, um, 
uh, the partner companies and also the ventures that we're going to be working with. They're a really important part of the the, the two-part uh, equation that, that constitutes a cohort. So yes, the apprentices need to be there. Um, we need to pick that that right group. But but as Krishna said earlier, in terms of the experience, really, really, really focused on the experience uh, in A100. So if you think about it, the experience of an apprentice or a partner company depends on, yeah, it depends on, on the three of us, but it also depends on the, the people sitting across the table, right? So that trainer that comes in, we've had uh, some, some really great partner companies in New Haven, C-Click Fix, uh, Core Informatics, Square Nine, uh, folks who've come in and done training on MongoDB, shared uh, experiences from their own uh, product development teams. Uh, they've shared experiences on using Meteor as a development tool. Uh, they've opened their offices to the apprentices. And so part of the experience, part of what's amazing about being an apprentice is, yes, what Julio said, the development that you go through. But the way that happens is through this really rich experience of experiencing what it's like to be a software developer, but not just at one company, at kind of all the companies at the same time um, in, in an important way. So, you know, again, when Devin and Ren got up to do a class on, on Git, you know, they're covering what it's like to work at C-Click Fix. Um, they're showcasing what it's what engineers think about um, how they roll, what they do. Uh, same thing uh, goes for uh, when we went out to Core Informatics to do our weekly meetup called Study Hall, which again Krishna rest referenced earlier. Uh, we're there with not just um, the development team, but even the CEO and, and the HR director of of Core Informatics, talking about. You know, how do the developers do their daily work? They work, you know, in a very specific way. How do they interpret Agile? What kind of tools do they use? It's an amazing experience, actually, for us, uh, the three of us, uh, just, you know, for our own kind of software engineering geekdom to go out and, and kind of get, you know, regular field trips to companies and, and to talk about uh, the ways people are using source uh, control, the way they're uh, managing DevOps, how they're developing applications. Super exciting, but it all comes down to this experience that is completely unique and and really uh, really exciting when you get into it. But again, with Stanford, bringing it back to that point, um, we're already beginning uh, to bring in those partner companies and those ventures that are going to make that experience. So Fantasy Squared out of Fairfield University is going to be one of the ventures that um, that's going to be featured uh, in the A100 program, and the students are going to get to work with them as a customer and and get some real experience dealing with real uh, real problems that come up in the course of trying to build a solution for a Which couple there of Which there are a ton of problems, usually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anytime you're building something new, there are a lot of problems. So, yeah, yeah. this is real-world experience these guys are getting, these guys and girls are getting. So, and that's the most important kind. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and uh, just a word about uh, Krishna and Julio. So, you know, and this is this applies to our our whole team and and everybody that we'll have in the future i know but for the two of these guys i mean having uh constant help support not just for the apprentices but also for uh the partner companies and the people who are trying to create a relationship and learn about these young software engineers uh it's really amazing to have two people like these guys and also the senior apprentices that we have working in the program they're all really you know just really dedicated they really care about uh getting, like Julio said, the apprentice from kind of point A to point B. Uh, and it's important because I, I, I think it's very true that people don't really have a good idea of how much potential they have. Uh, 
and it really takes someone else to bring it out of them. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, so it's the program team that we have is really, is really excellent. Um, and, and really uh, part of the reason they're excellent is not just what they know, but they really care about the apprentices that come through the program. And they're, Julio refers to them as his children, um, <laughs> and not in a diminutive sense. Um, he, you know, he, I, I think he really does, uh, feel, feel that way, you know, kind of a, a love for them. Um, not Absolutely. to get, not to get to, uh, you know, now we could, we could put on until. some Marvin Gaye right now in yeah. the background. <laughs> um, no, I think, I think that's great. You know, so I want to bring this back to Connecticut real quick. Uh, what is it that we can do in Connecticut to keep and not just keep, but grow, you know, this startup community, which goes right back to developers, you know, what else can we do? You know, we're obviously trending in a good direction now, but there's more we could do. And I'd, I'd just love to hear some of your thoughts on, on what, what we could do next. Should we each say one thing? Go ahead. <laughs> you you oh, walked into that I, one so first, bad. Right. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> You're buying me time to think. <laughs> I'll go first if you want. Sure. All right. So I'm going to go with education because that's where most of my experience lies. Uh, I think that if Connecticut wants to see better developers or a greater amount of developers, uh, they need to invest in the students, uh, not just in college, uh, but also in, in high school. When I was in high school, we had one programming course and we didn't learn very much. And I think a high school student is more than capable of learning a basic language, starting with Scala or just doing front-end development, CSS, HTML. Just give them an introduction of uh, programming, of problem solving, which is a skill that every student can use, not just developers. Uh, so I think a greater emphasis on earlier education is, is key in order to succeed. And there are a bunch of schools that are doing it already, and the results they're getting are are phenomenal. And I can tell you as a site manager that whenever I get an apprentice that started programming 10 years ago, uh, it carries a lot of weight. I can see it in the way they code. They, ha they, they have a much deeper understanding of, of coding. So it's very important that students get a chance to start early. Who's next in the spotlight? This is going to come off sounding like a plug for, uh, <laughs> for our company and what we're doing, which, you know, it is what it is, but I really better do believe you, better, that we're the right answer. Um, so, plug it, plug it. <laughs> so, so I really think that, um, from, I, I imagine your, your, your question is really about, uh, about what Connecticut as a state can do and we as members of the community in Connecticut can do. So I'll answer that in two parts. I think the state, um, by, uh, investing in and continuing to invest in programs, uh, like A100 and, uh, and a lot of the other things that are, are geared towards helping entrepreneurs, uh, throughout Connecticut is making a really good bet. Um, entrepreneurs really do drive a lot of change. And, uh, and that's not necessarily just economic change. It can be, it can be transformative social change that occurs, uh, over generations as well. So I'd say from a, from a state standpoint, that's what I would, I would say. Keep doing this kind of stuff. Um, I'd say as a community, um, one of the things that we'd love to do that we just don't, you know, we can't really focus on as a, as a, as a small company is actually encouraging, um, coding education at an earlier level. Uh, people often ask us, why aren't you working with high school students? Can we send high school students to your program? Well, the reality is we need to be working with people in a very narrow band, as Derek, uh, mentioned, you know, folks who are 
already have a thorough grounding in computer science because we're not going to teach them data structures and algorithms in a 12-week period of time uh, on top of everything else, right? So um, one of the things that I'd really love to see you know, us as a community do is, is really try to encourage more computer science education at a much earlier level. Uh, you know, if, 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 um, programming is a new form of literacy, which I do believe it is, uh, we need to en- ensure that it's, it's taught along with reading and writing and arithmetic at, at the grade school level. I have a bunch of things uh, that I think are important. I think the, 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 the idea of technical education at an early age is really important. Um, I know that for my two kids, I want to make sure that they're having programming experiences because there's no way that um, data and software development and technology are not central to anyone's job in the future, regardless of what it is. But um, So I, thought, I think that's a really good one. I think the idea of, of making a bet on, uh, on entrepreneurs is also really important because it's not, it's not generally a big bet compared to the things that uh, the communities do to keep large companies around. Um, and large companies, you know, based on, on research, don't really uh, produce net jobs, net wealth. Uh, they're, they're really important, obviously, but uh, entrepreneurs really are an important bet. And so the idea of the bet is, is a really important thing to think about. And this really, this gets a little uh, more cultural and a little bit soft. But the first thing that I would say that if, uh, if you're a policymaker or someone who cares about uh, having startups uh, in your local community, whether it's Connecticut or somewhere else, the first thing you need to do is say, these, these companies are a bet. Some of them will fail. And if you don't recognize that, you're going to expect things out of the community and you're probably going to crush it before it really uh, has a chance to bloom, number one. So you've got to be tolerant of failure and you've got to take risks and develop a culture of, of that kind of risk taking. Um, and really actually kind of uh, as a community trying to avoid being competitive and focus on, on the shared goals that you have. Um, you know, whether you're in one company and you're competing for software developers with another company or capital. At the end of the day, if the community that you're working in is more robust and, and there are more developers there, there's more capital, both, both companies are going to benefit. And so maybe, you know, the company down the road gets this architect and you get the next one. If there's only one to compete over, you're all in, on some level screwed, right? Mm-hmm. But if, if you've got, you know, lots and lots of activity, you're all going to do well. But I think what that comes down to is creating a culture that's not about competitiveness with each other but competitiveness against our goals and focusing on our mission, uh, which again goes back to that, um, that first point. Yeah, there, there are a number of other things that I think though, if you, if you think about the global startup community, there's so much competition. So things that Connecticut can do, put anybody who's in a company under three years old on the Husky plan. You know, take, take benefits out of the equation. I think the, the, the recent changes in, uh, healthcare may, may have some effect, but I think reducing the cost to an employee to belonging to a startup is really important. Taking away that risk. If people didn't have to worry about healthcare, they would join startups definitely uh, more often than they do now. Um, taking away some of the, the business entity taxes and things like that that are just a pain. Uh, making uh, government ex- uh, administratively less complex in Connecticut would be important. Reducing taxes. Um, all those things would be important. Also, immigration. Uh, is really important. If you want to grow a technical community and you have an artificial barrier to people who want to be a part of your community, 
look, it, there aren't enough developers globally, period. So if we can do something about immigration, I'm not an expert, but uh, I've seen people jump through some major hoops to become part of a company. We've gone through that. Um, and it it's ridiculous on some level because, you know, people want to be in, in this country. They they love it. Um, and they want to join companies and they want to contribute to the local environment. I just think we're there's there are far too many frictions when it comes to uh, to that process. Um, but I mean, those are a bunch of tactical suggestions and things to, to look at. But um, at the end of the day, I think really celebrating and trying to build a different culture uh, for Connecticut is really important. Um, if you're going to start small, and we are small, and you're going to grow and you're going to solve some of these systemic problems that we have. You've got you've got to be very uh, thick-skinned, and you've got to be very you know open-minded, and you've got to have an open heart, and you've got to care. And I think a lot of people do, but we're 169 towns. Um, there's plenty of competition. We got to get that out of our, of our system and just focus on how we, how can we make this community even greater than it is now, and and make it a force to be reckoned with. We've got more IP, I think, than anywhere else in the United States, or at least we have a lot. We have uh, a high density of, of patents. We have a ton of wealth, um, and it could we could we could have a more uh, fair, more equal state. We could have uh, opportunities for a lot more people, uh, but it's going to take a different culture. Uh, there's no question about it. So, and I think the startup community actually is it, it can pave the way for that because we can think differently, we can do different things, uh, we can take risks, and as long as people are supportive and and celebrate what happens, regardless of the outcome. You know, it's a pretty small bet, actually. Um, it doesn't take a lot of money. It just takes a lot of heart and a lot of hard work. Uh, but that's what entrepreneurs are all about providing, people like you, Mike. So uh, that's my my two cents, adding on to their 25 cents, maybe. I, I told you to give one. That was way more than one. But in all honesty, those are absolutely fantastic. I think that will give our listeners a lot to think about. Um, you know, there's a lot of things we could do. Uh, so... Tell me, our listeners right now, there may be some that want to sign up for the A100 program. They may just want to learn more about it, uh, come to some of the meetups. Where can they learn more about you guys? How can they get in touch? Well, you can visit the website, which is Apprentice100.com. That'll take you to the main uh, A100 website. You know, folks who are interested in either hiring through the program or uh, becoming part of the program as, a, as an entrepreneur, um, you know, uh, can certainly learn more about the program that way. Uh, if, if there are students listening to, to this podcast, which there may very well be, uh, there's also the application, uh, for, for, for joining the program as well, uh, as an apprentice. Excellent. Thank you guys for being on. Thanks for, having, for having us. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having us. And we're back. Hope everyone enjoyed that interview. Obviously, some riveting stuff. What'd you guys think? I uh, it was cool because I've actually been you know hearing about A100 from you and some other people. Um, so it's really cool that they are really trying to curate the tribe. Um, they're trying to go after a certain, you know, they really know the type of person they're trying to go after. Okay. They're not they're not kind of just you know shotgun approach trying to get everyone. Um, and that's I think he he mentioned that where he was saying. If we made this for everyone, it would have fell on its, you know, the, because of the weight of, of the, of that, that kind of, uh, targeting to everyone. And so they're going after a certain type of person 
and trying to get that person to the next level. You know, trying to, if they're already at 90%, getting them to 95% or 100%. So I think that's, uh, that's really cool. No, I think one of the uh, one of the great items here is is exactly what we discussed about a little bit offline, which is keeping all the talent here in Connecticut. Um, software developers leave here; they may go to school here, or they may grow up here, or they leave here to go elsewhere. I think Eric, you were mentioning that you knew someone who went to Silicon Valley. Yep. Yeah. So I know there, like in uh, in the valley, there's obviously these uh, coding academies all over the place, kind of these these coding boot camps. Because I think there's there, there's tons of people out like so coding's the hot topic for now, right? And so a lot of people are kind of getting into it. There's definitely a plethora of different. Um, Online courses that you can take. I mean, I, I think they mentioned them on the uh, the podcast. I mean, go to Coursera or go to some of these um, top coder things. Treehouse, like yeah, exactly. You know, and so um, so there's a lot of people who are kind of dabbling in it. And you know, I had a friend who he worked at Yale, kind of did some coding on the side. I mean, he 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 definitely saw it as a job skill and something to um, like an industry to go into. Because I mean, obviously, top coders are getting top money right now. Um, and so he looked into it, and he saw a one of these boot camps that um, it was out in Silicon Valley. It was, I mean, they're expensive. I mean, they're like ten to fifteen to twenty grand, and it's like a three month intensive program. You have to move out there. You're, I mean, you're you have to complete certain stuff. I mean, he actually went in there with a business concept that he was also building. You know, and he did a pitch night at the end and the, the whole the whole thing. Um, but again, I mean, he went out there because he was around the top talent um, and around people where, I mean, they have the record of saying, we place people with Google, we place people with Facebook, with Yahoo, with, you know. So, so I mean, there are people are being drawn out. And it's one of those things because I think, uh, I don't know if it was Julio or Krishna um, kind of mentioned it, was that some of these guys are not computer science majors. They're not people who who went to school for that. But if you have a passion for it and you really want to push yourself, you can become a top guy. And, um, but there's, you, you, you still need somebody holding your hand at some stage of that, um, unless you're just brilliant and then, you know, you don't need <laughs> anybody, but, um, but yeah, so I think that there, there is an issue of still people leaving the state, but one of uh, this type of program, I think will, will, will attract, um, some people to stay in the state or even maybe again, there may be some people right over the border that use this program and come into Connecticut. You never Listen, know. if you're if you're right out of college and and you have a knack for programming or you want to learn and A100 picks you up, I mean, there's a huge opportunity uh in in a good probability that you're going to get a, a a job right after the program has ended, uh keeping you right here in the great state of Connecticut. Now, Mike, you actually were looking for a programmer a while ago. It took you a while. Yeah, it took a long time. Um, uh, you know, Originally, I outsourced development, and uh, I've talked to, to Derek and Krishna at length about this topic. Outsourcing is really difficult. Just like any startup team, it's the most important thing to be able to sit across the table and, and look each other in the eye. Um, so I wanted to solve this issue uh, quickly. Um, but unfortunately, it took a long time to find a developer in the state of Connecticut that not only had the skills required, but had the uh, same vision as me um, and uh, – was able to get on board at that at that time. Um, so I actually met my developer and co-founder at a, a CT startup uh, weekend. Um, CT, uh, no, a, a startup weekend, not a CT startup weekend. Well, it was one in Connecticut. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. 
CT Startup Podcast, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Heard of it? Uh, listen to it yeah. now, suckers. Uh, yeah, it was the it was uh, the, the startup weekend at Yale, and it was actually, as I was walking out the door, uh, someone kind of asked me, hey, are you looking for a developer? That guy over there is iOS development, and uh, he had some experience with wearables, and it was just a perfect fit. And then I found out he came out of the A100 program. Um, so the proof's in the pudding that this thing works. Yeah, and it seems like they're definitely – Filling a need, um, you know, I was reading in the Hartford Business Journal last week that their uh, A100, you know, during the interview, I know that expansion to Stanford was on the radar, but now they've, you know, Derek has announced that they're going to be expanding to Hartford this fall, looking to take out some uh, co-working space uh, at Reset here in Hartford. Um, and it's interesting how they're kind of gearing each different expansion towards different markets. I mean, I think you mentioned that the Stanford market is going to be more geared towards large corporations, um, while the Hartford market is is going to be involved much more with startup companies, emerging companies, um, probably reflects a little bit more of the need here uh, in, in, in the central part of the state. I also think being involved with Reset and, and having uh, you know a foothold up here is really great because how many – how many companies are getting involved in reset that don't have the developer and being able to pass them off and say, Hey, listen, you could join the, the, the a 100 program. They will help you build that MVP or that really first stage product. And potentially you're going to get some developers to join your team at the end. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I almost think that there could, there's almost like another side of this because they were talking about how, um, I believe Christian said it, that, you know, even if you're a, a founder and you are building anything mobile, right? You're, you're still a, you're still a technical founder. You, you still have to understand it. You still have to get it. I mean, you talked about, you know, under, um, was it C plus? What were you looking at? Were you? Objective uh, C. Objective C. Okay. So it's one of those things too, is that I think there, there's definitely a place and a need to teach founders, uh, how to, how to really navigate finding a developer, what to ask, what questions you need to really understand. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and answers you need to understand because if you ask them a question and there's probably some people that can bullshit the best of them and, um, but then not really know it in the back end. So, um, so I think this is, this is good that they're coming up to uh, Hartford, uh, you know, in the fall. You know, one of the other things I really like about, uh, Derek and, and I've talked to Derek, but I haven't met Julio and Krishna personally, but, uh, it certainly sounds, sounds like they're on the same page is that Derek is concerned about these developers, um, not just coding skills and getting them out into companies, but concerned about them as, as people too, right? I mean, you know, so I've talked to him and he says, well, you know, we want to make sure that they have, um, they understand, you know, the uses of, uh, open source code, for instance, um, and things, things that could affect their programming or how they interact with companies or, or what are the kinds of contracts they're going to sign? How are they going to sign on to companies and things like that? So, it's not, it's, it's really, uh, it's really a full look at, at mm -hmm. a programmer going into a company, not just coding. So it's almost like, uh, they train the programmer, um, to be a freelancer, to almost be like them mm -hmm. as a business, right? And how do they pr promote themselves or how do they kind of go about it using their skill set kind of a thing or? I, I don't know that's actually as much freelance as being aware of the things that are gonna, uh, that th things that they're gonna face going yeah. out into the, into the world. Like any incubator accelerator for any project, right? You, 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 you take the company through the whole process. This is how you create your minimum viable product. This is how you, how you do things. But these are some of the, the here's a, here's a, some list of the things that you're going to face when you're out there. Yeah. Um, and doing that with developers. Nice. And so uh, I do think that um, anybody uh, looking for a job or looking for um, 
just to, to get involved with, with the company should take a, um, a look at Krishna's playbook because he obviously, um, they were talking about Derek was saying how they were, had had that one meeting they were, they were talking and during the meeting he said that he couldn't make a a, a meeting at um, Southern right and then Krishna at the end of it said hey can I take that meeting for you didn't wasn't hired didn't even you know say that you you know you're going to the next round or whatever but that initiative saying yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna take that first step and you know just asking I think that's huge um, and I think there's a place for anybody that has that kind of motivation and passion and is willing to kind of uh, this is, this is bad to say, but do free work um, or to, to get out there and actually take the first step for the employer kind of thing. Well, nothing wrong with that. I mean, look at Derek himself, right? I mean, here's a guy yeah. who's well-known in the entrepreneur community, cares about the entrepreneur community uh, very strongly, um, you know, was one of the people who, who helped set up uh, – uh, the Grove and, and, you know, the, the, uh, the grid, which is the, one of the ecosystems in, in New Haven. And he, uh, you know, one of the things he, he wasn't from Connecticut. Yeah. You know, he came here and he's thought, what can I do to help this community out? That's, that's a person with drive and initiative that's very admirable. I mean, you know, I, Derek and independent software have had a hand in, you know, not just, uh, the A100 program, but the whiteboard, uh, and the startup roadshow, which was happening, uh, in 2014, which traveled around and featured some of the startups taking place, uh, around the state of Connecticut. Um, and I'm not sure what's happening with it now, but I think we should, we should definitely have that discussion. And it, it's all about anything and everything we could do to kind of strengthen the, uh, the ecosystem here. Can I ask a question about coding in general? Uh, as someone who, you know, my experience with coding goes back to the 80s when I was a kid and my older brother showed me how to write a program on our Commodore computer, which basically could count. Mm-hmm. Um, and it counted up to a high number. And, you know, that's been my last experience with coding. Um, and I, I understand that coding and software have made some modest advances uh, in the interim. <laughs> um, so how, I mean, how necessary is it to for, you know, just a, a, a layperson who, who isn't involved in, developing software i mean is coding something like gonna be like the new reading i mean is are you gonna need i mean as we become more and more integrated with uh devices that run on software you know they're they're really an integral part of our lives um is this a skill that maybe everyone should have i mean they're teaching it uh in schools to very young kids i mean uh are are we gonna be end up am i gonna end up a dinosaur if i don't learn how to code yes Okay. Yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> Some paleontologist is going to find your bones and say, this guy was not a coder. Oh, man, I'll work on my pose. Um, uh, James, I think we're already there uh, in terms of you and I being dinosaurs. True. I, I think, yes, they're teaching kids at a very young age how to code. What, what's great is I think as we do progress in such a huge digital age, the the beauty of knowing how to code or having some knowledge in coding is – Anything you think of could become a reality if you know how to do it. You can build anything you want. It's basically your own little sandbox. Um, you know, obviously what you build is limited to your knowledge of that language, but nonetheless, having some, some experience in it will, will lead you down a really interesting path where, uh, you know, it, it's, it's really the limits are your own imagination and, and, you know, making sure you have opposable thumbs and everything like that. Well, what I think is really interesting is that uh, it seems to me some of the companies that make the most amount of money are the ones that hide the coding from the general public, right? Because the, the, the people <clears throat> the people who can make the money will probably be people who can code. But but the people who they sell to are the ones who can't, 
you, you look at the reason why Apple is so successful, it's because people say, well, it just works. They, they get something in there. The, the user interface is intuitive. Um, it's, it's not, it doesn't have a really hard learning curve. Um, and it's great because everyone's mother and grandmother can pick it up with a little effort. We, uh, recently, uh, gave my mother-in-law an iPad for the first time and she was, uh, FaceTiming and sending photos via text and everything she had never done before. She never had a smartphone before, you know, the first day, never mind within the first week. Um, and, and so it's very, uh, it's, you know, it's very interesting how I think that there'll always be that, that, that'll always be the market. It'll be the market for how do we create difficult things and make it accessible to everybody. And it's the coders who do and the other people who buy. And it's going to be the, you know, the people that are in the matrix and out of the matrix kind of a thing. <laughs> so I should prepare for a life of subjugation. Yes, exactly. Uh, you're not going to be you're not, you're not going to be tapped in and, and learning all of the kung fu and everything. So uh, on the Nebuchadnezzar, yeah, on the Nebuchadnezzar. Well, there was a there was a comedy skit by a comedian Joe Rogan um, who said once that uh, <laughs> he, he said, "What happens if all the smart people die?" He goes, "Why don't you? If I send you out with a with a knife and a and a flashlight and go into the woods and say, make me a smartphone, how long is it going to take before you come back?'" <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> so I I always think of that as being particularly applicable. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I certainly couldn't make a smartphone. I couldn't even continue. I could. I, I have no idea how those things are made. That's why we need to protect the smart people. That's right. That's At all our costs. <laughs> There's the startup. So when are you, when are you guys gonna make my uh my, my bodyguard team? Oh yeah, here we go. Need, need, need here we go. Need some bodyguards. I knew yeah. someone would say it at the table. Surprised it wasn't Dave, though. Oh, you, th- you thought my ego would come out first. Yeah, but I forgot it was shattered. <laughs> that's right. That's right. If you if you listen long enough, you'll know about my shattered ego. Um, and 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 I'm actually surprised Eric said it because if you listen to the last podcast, we all know that uh, the Francis was not a successful product. <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> we just actually have a moment of silence for all the souls we lost uh, <laughs> to the Francis? Yeah, in, in what we call the Francis experiment. <laughs> Well, first of all, that was just the first iteration. We are coming out with another. You know, we're gonna we're gonna be testing some other different flavors and, and coming out soon. So, oh boy. killing more people. Oh boy. <laughs> and on that note, I think that gives us enough time for uh, this week. We have to wrap it up. So we look forward to talking to you next week. We'll have more great interviews coming and some interesting uh, changes to the podcast here and there as we try out new types of episodes. Continue to give us your feedback. We really appreciate it. You've just listened to the CT Startup Podcast. You can find us on iTunes or check out our webpage at ctstartup.com where you can find all our social media links. And please, please leave us your feedback. Special thanks to our production team, Kate Rupar, Dylan Gilliatt, and Evan Dobis, as well as our equipment and marketing sponsor, Martha Kalina, LLP.